0: I'm Christian Weishart, and this is Examining Ethics, brought to you by the Janet Prindle Institute for Ethics at DePaul University. With us today is education scholar Sharon Fraser-Burgess. She's here to discuss democratic deliberation and how it can foster inclusivity in a classroom setting.
1: A lot of my work is about sort of thinking about democratic deliberation in a way that makes room for others, or those who are considered others or who are othered and not taking away from the fact that these others also want to be in the space of reasons. We want to be at the deliberative table and we also want to contribute to the great summation or conclusion or body of knowledge, if you will, that defines democracy.
0: Stay tuned for my interview on democratic deliberation on today's episode of Examining Ethics. Deliberative democracy is a school of political thought in which conversation takes on a central role. It's different from representative democracy, which involves voting and polling, because it focuses on discussion and understanding to move forward on issues. Sharon Fraser-Burgess, professor of social foundations and multicultural education at Ball State University, explains that educators can take principles from deliberative democracy and apply them to a classroom setting. In her work, she advocates for democratic deliberation, which is a means of teaching students not only how to work through cultural differences, but also how to be better citizens in a democracy. In a lot of your work in education studies, you write about something called democratic deliberation. And I wanted to know, first of all, that was kind of an unfamiliar phrase to me. So so what does that mean? What is democratic deliberation?
1: Deliberation is basically co-decision making among Uh, stakeholders with the goal of consensus and maybe even unanimity. Democratic deliberation draws on that basic definition by having two criteria, at least two criteria. One is a procedural one and the other would be a moral sort of standard. The procedural one relates to the co-decision making component and Various theories are more formal about how that unfolds in terms of the consensus reaching and whether unanimity is ultimately the goal. And then there's also the moral piece, which is inclusiveness. That is, insofar as we are dealing with citizens, then there should be political equality, which is the very essence right, of, of, of citizenship.
0: And what might democratic deliberation look like in a classroom setting?
1: So there are so many different subtleties among the different theorists of democracy in general, but also on how educational theorists draw on these different philosophies of democracy to make sense of it in the classroom. The key sort of persons who have influenced how democratic deliberation on foes in the classroom would be John Dewey and Amy Gutman. So Amy Gutman's theory draws on specific moral norms that should characterize democratic uh, sort of spaces. And one of them is non-repression and the idea that um, citizens cannot be excluded from the process because of their conceptions of the good. And the other is non-discrimination that citizens cannot be denied participation in processes on the basis of group differences. Just on the face of those two criteria for the moral norm, you can imagine how well the school setting applies to these principles across every discipline. So, In the classroom setting, that can look like communities of inquiry that is specifically related to John Dewey's account as well. And in communities of inquiry, which again can be implemented in any classroom setting, there is a focus on problem solving, but there are also certain pre-existing guidelines about how to go about problem-solving that support
0: non-repression and non-discrimination. I think some people might hear all of that and just think, well, just have a discussion. Like, why (laughs) can't you just have a discussion, right? So why is it important to think about and, and theorize about democratic deliberation so much when it comes to education?
1: If we would think about how important education is to a democracy, right? And broadly speaking, education, when we're thinking of informal and formal settings. but if you think of a formal space as K-12 education or K-16, if you want to go all the way up to a four-year degree, then we appreciate that uh, because of the demands of of democracy on its citizens in being a government for the people, by the people, there is an implicit sort of knowledge component. All of that is the backdrop of what kinds of procedures do we need to master in order to participate right in that process. And so schools are the places where we build civic competency and the knowledge that is needed. And of course, social studies does that, but also a sense that we, uh, that, that, that democracy rests on our, soul, our, our shoulders and we're cultivating citizens. And that is a primary aim of education. So, with that backdrop, deliberation is sort of petite democracies in the classroom. And we are practicing all of those qualities, being able to listen to views that are different than yours, identifying the basis on which we include evidence and exclude some evidence as we reach convergence. All of those qualities of learning to navigate disagreement and come to some some basis of consensus, all of those qualities and traits are, are essential, right? For democracy. So education has a lot at stake and cultivating that, and that was Thomas Jefferson's belief from the inception in the in the 1700s when he fought so hard for education to be free and available to everyone and publicly supported. Because he he also understood that we um, we need we need uh, this a threshold of of democratic competency. Granted, he had a very limited view of who would qualify, but you know the idea was still a good one at the time.
0: Yeah, I want I want to talk more about the the differences between you know Thomas Jefferson's ideal and the kind of mm-hmm. reality of the eighteenth century. Are there any kind of rifts today, right, between the ideal of democratic deliberation that John Dewey and Amy Gutman came up with mm-hmm. and what actually might happen in the classroom?
1: Uh, yes, there is a lot of disagreement. Going back to the two necessary criteria for democratic deliberation, right? We we need to have this procedural component and we need to have this moral component that treats everyone as citizens, um, grants political equality. But the issue lies lies in terms of what constitutes the substantive knowledge that defines us as American citizens or citizens of the United States and therefore, there is disagreement about which ideals we can draw on to find unity. And I, I can only to give an example of this. I would point uh, to a long-standing agreement in the sort of philosophical community regarding whether there should be appeal to ideal theory in the moral norms, or there should be some adjustment of the facts on the ground. And Danielle Allen, who's a well-known theorist of democracy talks about in her book, Talking to Strangers, she references the fact that Hannah Arendt, another well-known democratic theorist did not support desegregation of schools in Arkansas. And her view was that the parents have a right, all parents have a right to send their children to whichever school they want that choice was a universal right. And Danielle Allen mentioned, while well, that's a great theory, a great idea. In reality, this universal right given to some parents meant that black parents had rights that were abrogated because of that. And so that's an example of where un- appeal to universality in a practical way ha- raises these conflicts and therefore, mean that we're we're fighting on the ground in schools about how to navigate this difference between the ideal
0: and the practical. You know, while we're while we're talking about like divergences, um, do you have a, do you have an idea, or have you have you come up with an idea about democratic deliberation that kind of diverges from the original thinking about it? I do. I've thought about
1: how to hold on to the best of democratic deliberation, which is its procedural kind of rationality and its commitment to equality by granting epistemic or knowledge status to more individuals. So so the, the way that this appeal to idealism works out, it means that in the case of Arendt, it would be difficult for Black parents to say, accommodate my context on the basis of my identity and the fact that I'm a, I'm a member of a, a political class that's been historically oppressed. One would say that the ideal theory allows individuals to be part of, a, of humanity on the basis of you know, those traits, but not on the basis of their identity group membership. So what I argue is that one's membership in a group, an identity group, can provide reasons, and by reasons I mean evidence-informed reasons, for one's claims in deliberation. So I could draw on my experience as a woman of color by which to make claims for certain sort of recognition or acknowledgement. And actually there's a recent theory that's come up, but well, it's not recent, it's been pretty widely known called, um, which takes the opposite view. It's, it says that uh, there could be epistemic injustice, meaning that in a deliberative situation, the dominant group could not take me seriously as a knower because of my membership in this protected class. I make a more positive claim that it's possible for me to be advantaged as a knower because I'm, I have these experiences that give me a different knowledge base on which to draw, but which I could offer to the group to consider in granting me my claim or coming to consensus around my claim.
0: I love that that spin on it, that you are adding to the epistemic store of, or you're adding to this shared pool of knowledge, right? And um,
1: like, for example, a, an example of that, because it's good to talk in, you know, sort of abstract terms, but is, is womanism, which draws on you know, Alice Walker's um, work in search of Our mother's garden, but the color purple, you know, is an example of how womanism works, like, you know, One can think of African-American women sort of as being in this class of oppressed individuals historically. But there is a sense in womanism that oppression is not the whole story. That even though it is not desirable to be oppressed (laughs) out of that oppression, there is a human response that is capable and modeled in the lives of many American descendants of slaves that could be, I won't say an, an epistemic sort of source of, of knowledge for others and on which others could draw by virtue of seeing it modeled. It would add to the whole epistemic store that we have as a nation, despite the regrettable past that, um, that led to it there's a difficulty with reconciling the pain of the past and and sort of saying who's blameworthy and who's not, and acknowledging that regardless of that, there are multiple examples of individuals who have transformed that experience without bitterness into a mindset, certain dispositions that they model for individuals who may not have come from that background, but have the advantage then of saying, well, I can see this citizen was able to acquire X trait of sort of radical self-love and also a sort of, a, I will not say resilience because that's kind of an overused term, but a, a sense of that themselves as a person in the divine gaze, for example, and that is what they're drawing on as they navigate the, the, the challenges in life. Yeah, um, that's an example of how There can be a knowledge base that one brings to a deliberative table that others who don't come from that identity and may even be in the majority
0: can then begin to recognize and acknowledge. What's the function of of trust just in general in education, but specifically in these deliberation settings that you're talking about?
1: If we begin with ideal theory, trust is taken for granted in the intersubjective space of education. The teacher is the caregiver, and some even think of the teacher as the midwife of democracy, if you wanna draw on kind of a Socratic reference. And this trust does not have to be earned. Thinking again, an ideal, right? The the theory, the trust does not have to be earned. The teacher is implicitly committed to to the task and the students implicitly trust the teacher. In reality, that is not what happens, especially given that there is likely to be cultural differences in many spaces between the teacher and her students. And you know, 90% of teachers are female. This is not all about racial difference. There's also differences of um, socioeconomic status and, Differences of gender and sexual orientation. And and so I don't think, I, I think that we can no longer take it for granted that trust is sort of the currency of education. And also, student to student, as well. Again, we would want to hope that in the classroom space, trust is taken for granted when students are together, but our differences in many different forms lead in a classroom setting, particularly as students get older. And by, you know, in high school, these differences are leading the interactions. So the point that I would put forward is that trust has to be generated, and it has to be intentionally generated in the classroom. And it is the teacher's primary task to generate that trust in developmentally relevant ways for students from K through 12. And doing that does involve some very specific pedagogical choices that are made in the classroom.
0: Yeah, so my, my last question is a kind of personal one, which is why do you care about these issues? And, and why is this something that you've chosen to focus on in your, in your scholarship? Uh, Thank you for that
1: question, because that personal motivation, I think, is critical to the scholarly task. You know, my work really comes out of my experience as an academically trained philosopher and loving Western academic philosophy, but bemoaning the fact that my experience, my lived experience, was not reflected or even theorized in much of the literature. So basically deliberative democracy did not take into account my lived experience. And so my initial task, once I passed all my courses and comprehensive exam and could not be kicked out of the program, (laughs) was to figure out how to theorize my experience in a way that would make it a competitor, um, not competitor, but on par or interlocutor, if you will, with the pre existing philosophical theories. And so a lot of my work is about thinking about democratic del- deliberation in a way that makes room for others, or those who are considered others or who are othered, and not taking away from the fact that these others also want to be in the space of reasons. We want to be at the deliberative table and offer claims that are rationally weighed in, in just as everyone else. We also want to contribute to the great summation or conclusion or body of knowledge, if you will, that defines democracy and to have others gain from our experiences as much as we gain from theirs. So there, there needs to be true mutuality and reciprocity, if you will. And so my, my, much of my, my philosophical work has been thinking about that. And then filtering down to the classroom level, as I think about students, um, not not, uh, certainly students of African descent, but a multicultural democracy is one in which everyone benefits from difference. And difference is contributing to the quality of life for society. That's what I've always been striving to do, thinking about how that's possible.
0: If you want to know more about our guests' other work, check out our show notes page at examiningethics.org. Examining Ethics is hosted by the Janet Prindle Institute for Ethics at DePaul University. Christian Weishart wrote and produced the show. Our logo was created by Evie Broges. Our music is by Blue Dot Sessions and can be found online at sessions.blue. Examining Ethics is made possible by the generous support of DePaul alumni, friends of the Prindle Institute, and you, the listeners. The views expressed here are the opinions of the individual speakers alone. They do not represent the position of DePaul University or the Prindle Institute for Ethics.